The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. God the Holy Spirit is the one who is the uh, one who teaches us, the one who helps us to understand the word, the one who stores it in our soul, the one who brings it to our memory in time of application. He is our power source for the spiritual life, working in conjunction with the Word of God. It is always the Spirit of God in conjunction with the Word of God that produces the maturity in the believer so that he can glorify God. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary so that we can be in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to study the Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. Your word is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The psalmist said it's in your light that we see light, and it's only as we come to understand the creation, and it's only as we come to understand the establishment principles and the absolute spiritual values that are part of the universe that you have created that we can come to accurately uh, understand what is going on around us, that we can have objective self-analysis and cultural analysis and that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is our responsibility to renew our mind, to renovate our thinking, to completely overhaul all of the concepts, ideas, and values that are in our soul so that we can begin to think as you think and to apply doctrine uh, under the teaching of God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, you'll help us to understand these things that we might be able to objectively evaluate uh, the things that are going on in our own lives and the things around us, that we might look at them through divine viewpoint, not human viewpoint, that we might be able to apply your word accurately 
that you might use it toward our spiritual growth, that we might glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last time, as we continue our study in Judges, we came to Judges chapter 9, which tells the uh, odd, if not bizarre, little episode about the tyranny of Gideon's son by a Canaanite concubine. The son's name is Abimelech. And before we got into chapter 9 to study Abimelech and his uh, usurpation of the monarchy in Israel, I use that word usurpation because the true monarch in Israel is God, yet Abimelech connives and conspires with the residents of Shechem to have himself appointed king over Israel. And it is a time of tremendous tyranny. He exercises his authority in an extremely abusive way. It is marked by violence. It's marked by conspiracy. It's marked by uh, people uh, stabbing one another in the back. All sorts of things are going on here that are not unusual. You can take this and you can apply it to what goes on in an, in an office situation, in businesses. You can apply it to what goes on in some marriages. You can apply it to what happens in certain family dynamic situations. You can apply it on a national level. So just because the text here is talking about tyranny in a nation doesn't mean that it has irrelevance towards other fields of endeavor. And that's why last time I stopped to cover the doctrine of paganism and tyranny. Because what tyranny is, is the abuse of authority. Authority was something that God initiated in human history, not because of the fall, not to regulate sin, but because whenever there is a group of persons, there is authority related to role function. This is true even in the Godhead. And we looked at the Trinity, and we've studied that many times, that even in the Trinity, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are perfectly equal in their being, in their persons, and that no one has or lacks anything that the others have, there is still a hierarchy. There is still a structure of authority. There is someone designated in the uh, supreme authority position. That's God the Father. God the Father sends the Son, Jesus Christ, though He is full deity, undiminished deity, lacks nothing the Father has, can do nothing unless the Father gives Him authority to do it. Uh, also, the Holy Spirit is sent or proceeds to use the technical theological vocabulary, proceeds from both the Father and the Son. So the Holy Spirit is under the authority of the Father and the Son. So authority is not something that is inherently bad. But man, because he is a sinner, always wants to interpret authority, especially when someone in authority wants us to do something that we don't want to do. We want to react to that authority and somehow... Uh, impugn that authority or say that authority is evil or that per person's abusing authority. And that is because at the very core, our sin nature wants to assert its own autonomy. That goes all the way back to the fall, Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent comes to the woman and tempts her and asks her, what did God say? She said, well, we can't touch, we can't. Uh, eat of the fruit. She immediately begins to evaluate. She said, "Is this?" The serpent says, "Is this really good?" And she begins to evaluate God. So she puts herself in that position of judging or evaluating the authority of God. Now, last time, as we developed the idea of of uh, tyranny, 
I wanted to help you think this through categorically. To do that, I stopped and we looked at the divine institutions. There are five divine institutions. Now, you may have been taught four. I separate four and five because they are temporally and spatially separated in the Scriptures. The first is individual responsibility. This took place in the Garden of Eden before the fall. God told Adam, said, you can eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden, but from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you cannot eat. So there was a responsibility imposed upon them to do God's commands, fulfill His commands to guard and to keep the garden, but also not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, the authority is the individual's volition. The authority in the soul is our volition. Then the second divine institution, also established prior to the fall, before there was sin, is marriage. And in the marriage, the authority is the husband. In marriage, the authority is the husband and then family. God told Adam and the woman to be fruitful and multiply, even though God sovereignly intervened, so that did not take place until after the fall. Uh, There was the establishment, at least in an incipient way, in that command of the family. And the authority for the family is located in the parents. And then in Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic Covenant, there is the establishment of government authority, that human government is delegated to man. And this is done by giving man the authority to take human life in the form of capital punishment. Now, the reason we say that this establishes human government is because the most serious, the most extreme judicial act that a a body of human beings can take is to make that decision to take the life of a criminal. Now, if human beings have been delegated the authority to take the life of a criminal, someone who commits murder, someone who commits rape, someone who commits some other heinous crime, that if they've been given the authority to do the most, make the most extreme decision possible, then that implies all other judicial decisions. It is a form of an a fortiori argument. A fortiori is a Latin term meaning from the stronger. And from the stronger argues that if, uh, if you can lift up a, a hundred pounds, then a fortiori, you can lift twenty pounds. In other words, if you can do something that is the most extreme, then something that involves much less effort can also be accomplished. So if, the, if man has the authority to take human life from someone who has committed a crime, not because it's a deterrent, although it may have deterrent features. Every t- notice, every time we hear contemporary discussions on the death penalty, You always hear someone say, but it's not really a deterrent. Well, the Scripture never places it, never gives that as the reason for capital punishment. Not because it's a deterrent, but because someone has committed an act so heinous, they have removed so much control from their own sin nature that they have forfeited the right to live. That's the point in capital punishment. It is not simply a deterrent because it may not be a deterrent for everyone. But also, if you're going to apply capital punishment the way Scripture says it should be applied, then it should be swift and it should be efficient. It should not be ten years later. You should not have a system where uh, 
the, the criminals do not have adequate representation. I think the way we the, 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 we have to separate in the current debate over capital punishment, we have to separate the principle of capital punishment from the way it is applied uh, legislatively and judicially in our nation. And the way it's often applied today is injudicious. It is unfair. It is inappropriate. It's, it probably shouldn't even be applied. It's done so poorly. It's done so irregularly. People who are guilty of certain crimes that or deserve capital punishment should be executed in an efficient manner and quickly, within a year. And if you can't do it in a timely manner, I mean, this the idea of somebody waiting 15 or 20 years and giving them hundreds and hundreds of opportunities to appeal is just absurd. It is extremely inequitable. And so the way it is applied needs to be evaluated. But the principle does not need to be questioned. And unfortunately, people don't know how to think in our culture anymore, and they can't distinguish principle from application of a principle. And just because something is not applied correctly, but see, the agenda of the anti-capital punishment crowd is to attack the application because then you can do away with the principle. That's their agenda. When they say they want to uh, reevaluate the way it's applied because it may not be equitable, it may be unfair, there may be uh, many inequities in the system, that's just a subterfuge because their ultimate agenda is to, because they've rejected the principle out of hand, they're just using that as a way to get at the application of the principle. So it's a complex argument, but as believers, we can't question the principle. You question the principle of capital punishment, then you undercut everything the Scripture says about government, about authority, and about nations. And that is extremely dangerous. So the fourth divine institution is government, uh, that there is a legitimate authority established by God to govern human affairs. And then the final is international distinctions. Now, government was established by the Noahic Covenant in Genesis chapter 9, and it's not till Genesis chapter 11, uh, a couple of hundred years after the uh, conclusion of the uh, Noah's flood, that you have the episode of the Tower of Babel where God uh, brings multiple languages into the human race, and the consequence of that is that it creates international distinctions and international uh, borders. Now, the ultimate authority for maintaining the uh, borders, maintaining the distinctions in nations is God's, but Satan is usurping that today because, remember, he is the God of this age and he is the prince and the power of the air. And so Satan's agenda is to uh, eradicate national distinctions, to have some sort of international uh, organization that he can rule, and that will be brought into place during the tribulation under the Antichrist who Satan personally will indwell. Now, when we looked at this, and we looked at the um, whole category of these divine institution in terms of uh, tyranny, we applied the principles from the sin nature. Sin nature of the individual is motivated by a lust pattern, and that lust pattern moves all of us in two, one of two different directions. One day it may be one direction, one day the next direction, but we all trend in one of two directions, either towards asceticism, legalism, or, and rationalism on the one hand, 
or towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism on the other hand. Antinomianism is anti-law, lawlessness. That is, um, that is a complete breakdown of any society in terms of anarchy. It's when there's anarchy in the soul from an antinomian, then you have a collection of people with sin natures trending towards antinomianism, then you're going to trend towards anarchy, and that's going to cause a breakdown of all your social institutions. What happens is when a society trends towards anarchy, then in order to bring some sort of control to that which is out of control, you have an equal and opposite reaction to the other extreme to bring control. Legalism is part of that. It's asceticism. Legalism on the individual level is to try to bring some sort of, of artificial control to the sin nature, but in the political realm or in relational realm, it is the excessive use of authority. I think this is perhaps one way of understanding the rage that's going on in our own society today. Once people have lost the concept of personal self-discipline and self-control so that they are moved, so that they are operating in irresponsibility where they are their own authority and everybody does whatever they want to do, then what happens in different arenas of operation, let's just take road rage as the, one of the hot topics of the day. Talk about road rage. Everybody wants to do whatever they want to do on the highway. Somebody gets in their way, so they don't feel like they're in control anymore. Everything's anarchic on the highway, and they can't get where they want to be, and everything's out of control. So uh, there, there's this personal lawlessness in terms of their, their surroundings. So now they want to react in the other extreme, which is to try to impose some sort of order. So there is this reaction to try to control something that is, is considered out of control. And so you get this, this increased anger. And this happens in many different areas, not just in that, but I think this is part of what is uh, at, at the root of the, the whole phenomenon of the violence at schools, is that kids feel like their whole life's out of control. For one reason or another, maybe there's no discipline that's ever been imposed on the kids. Maybe there's no discipline in the home. Maybe their life is uh, anarchic from their perspective, so they're trying to, they react in anger, trying to bring some sort of control. But I think this helps explain perhaps some of the dynamic that's going on in the increased rage that exists among so many people in our society. And the point that I am making is that the more a culture whether, and think of that culture as your home life. Think of that culture as your marriage. Think of that culture as the work environment at the office place. The more any culture gets away from the controlling absolutes of establishment principles and the Word of God, the more it's going to move towards anarchy. First and foremost, because there's a rejection of divine authority. And authority can't be understood properly apart from a framework of the scriptures. When, when man, apart from the scriptures, tries to deal with authority, it's always viewed in some sort of tyrannical manner. As it moves, you always go to these extremes. Now, the way that plays itself out in terms of relationships, I pointed out last time, in individual responsibility, you were going to move towards either antinomianism or you're going to move towards some sort of legalistic self-control, one or the other. The tyranny of the sin nature is involved. In marriage, what happens is as authority is no longer understood, what happens in a marriage, and, and you see this in, in the role of women today, 
and what's happened as a consequence of the, of the influence of the feminist movement since the 60s, the feminist movement has cast a, the male authority in the marriage in a negative light. As far as the feminist movement is concerned, the exercise of male authority is tyranny. They never distinguish between a legitimate use of male authority in the home and tyranny. For the feminist movement, any exercise of uh, male authority is, by definition, uh, tyrannical. So what happens is the more and more you hear this message that comes across through television shows, through media, through the pronouncement of politicians, the more you see this kind of polarization that takes place, and it has its impact in the home until eventually what you have is, is um, uh, a loss of the, the, the biblical idea of marriage, that the two become one flesh, but the leader in the home is the husband. And the wife's role, according to Scripture, is to be the helper, the assistant, the one who comes alongside the man to help him be successful because he's the one that God is leading to direct the family. That doesn't mean he's always right. That doesn't mean he's perfect. Authority is never set up in Scripture to obey authority. You never have a statement made to obey government if they're right. Wives, obey your husbands when they're right. Children, obey your parents when they're right. It never qualifies it. Because once, you, once the person in the subordinate role starts questioning the person in the authority position, then you're following the path of Eve in the garden. You're setting yourself up as the authority. Now, that does not apply when the person in authority is demanding illegal activity. Now, we're not talking about, um, for the 99% of the time that we're talking about as employees, as uh, people working on a team in sports, as uh, wives in a marriage, as husbands. Husbands are under authority, too. They're under the authority of the Lord. And they are to be following the direction of the Lord and making doctrine a priority and applying doctrine in the home, whether it's authority in the workplace, authority uh, in school, wherever it is, we are to follow that authority. Otherwise, there's the breakdown of whatever the institution is. And then with that consequent anarchy, there's going to be, have to be the imposition of a rigorous control from the outside in order to restore order. Now, that's what happens sometimes in marriage. I think this explains the rise in our culture today of spousal abuse. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't, a, there wasn't um, spousal abuse or wife abuse or child abuse 100 years ago. There was. There's always a certain element of paganism in every culture and in every society. But what's happened in the last 30 to 40 years is with the complete societal, cultural rejection of biblical absolutes, especially since the mid-60s, all of a sudden uh, spousal abuse and child abuse has become pandemic. It's everywhere. Now, you had episodes of it here and there before because you still had families that, were primary, that weren't believers where there was no doctrine governing the home. But once you get this as a majority factor in a culture, then it becomes rampant and it starts happening everywhere. 
And so what happens in marriage is that there's a reaction against the lack of control to, to excessive control, and that is why you start seeing more and more abuse, and you see tr- women treat... It's interesting that, that the more the feminist movement has had its impact in our culture, what's been the uh, correlating consequence? You've had a rise in abuse. Women are treated more as sex objects today and as and objects of abuse than they were 40 or 50 years ago. Of course, now the feminists would come along and distort that and say, well, 40 or 50 years ago, the wife had to stay at home and she was under the authority of her husband, and that was the worst abuse at all. But that's because they're distorting and twisting the data and redefining the terminology. Same thing happens in the family. Authority breakdown. You have authority breakdown because parents no longer understand that their primary role is to teach their children to control their sin nature. I mean, if you want to break it all the way down, you have to teach your kids to control that sin nature, and that involves corporal punishment when necessary. It involves your active attention in everything going on with your children in the home so that you can uh, stop the development of certain trends before they get rooted in behavior. And that part of that is teaching children manners, teaching them good manners, teaching them protocol for social relationships. That's what manners are. Manners and etiquette are social principles for people to apply to govern their behavior when relating to other self-centered people. And so if we don't teach our children good manners, then they're going to grow up and pull out a 45 and shoot somebody who cuts them off in traffic because you haven't taught them from childhood how to control these trends and how to control the uh, patterns of their sin nature and their anger and everything else. So uh, it's vital for parents to be teaching children uh, respect for authority. The, you, one of the things that I've noticed in the last 10 or 15 years is um, a, a breakdown in the concept of respect for elders, for older people. Children often today, they come up and they say any adult, and they call them by their first name. When I was a kid, you never I must have been in my 30s before I ever called an adult by anything other than Mr. or Mrs. You just didn't do that. And yet today we have kids who run around and they call their Sunday school teachers by their first name and they call the pastor by his first name or they call any other adult that's a friend of their parents by their first name. And parents need to say, you don't do that. You need to say you have to learn respect for authority. You have to learn principles. You have to address adults in a formal way as Mr. or Mrs. or Dr. or Pastor or whatever. But we have to teach these kinds of principles because they have an impact on those kids in terms of teaching them respect for authority. In the family, what happens is when parents follow the horrible teachings of of, uh, Dr. Spock, which is what happened in the 50s, and you don't teach kids, uh, drill into them authority orientation, and the result is you produce a generation like the baby boomers who had no authority orientation, and so they rebelled against it in the 60s. And the effects of that rebellion are still rippling like a tidal wave through our entire culture. And uh, what happens when the parents don't teach the kids authority orientation, 
Then there's anarchy in the home. That happens a lot today. Parents are too busy. Dad's working 60, 70 hours a week at work, and Mom's got a second job to pay all the heavy tax bills put on the families now. And so when they come home, they're all concerned about their career and not the kids, and the kids are left without uh, observation and without uh, uh, parental involvement. And so there's no discipline there, and the kids do what they want to do, and the parents are doing what they want to do. And and it's the same thing that happens in a marriage. You end up with people who are generally going in the same direction. See, the problem today is, in marriage, is that instead of two people riding in the same car going to the same destination, you have two people who, for the time being, are driving down the same highway in separate cars in separate lanes. And see, the biblical idea is they're in the same car going in the same direction for the same goal. But what happens in most marriages is after a while, you end up with two people going in the same direction. and They think everything's okay, but they're in two different cars. And it just happens for convenience right now that they're going in the same direction. But as soon as something happens and there's some problem in life, then it's real easy for them just to go their separate ways and then find somebody else that happens to be going in the same general direction, and then they drive along beside them for a while. And it happens. You can expand that analogy out into the family, and then before long there's breakdown. So what happens when there's no discipline, no authority orientation in the family is the kids are out of control. There's no discipline there. And so what happens usually in anger, in order to try to bring some kind of control back, you see abuse, anger uh, results from that. And so you have an increase in, in abuse in the family. Same thing happens in government when people won't govern themselves by through self-discipline and personal responsibility. Then it produces anarchy. People are no longer uh, can no longer possess and utilize firearms in a responsible manner, and so the government's going to come in and control it through excessive. Uh, regulation. What that's going to do is destroy freedom, and that's always what happens when you get away the, in history. The only nations that have ever experienced any degree of personal individual liberty are nations that have had their thinking rooted and grounded in the Judeo-Christian principles of the Scripture. The further you get any nation in history, the further they get away from that, the less personal freedom, because it's only on the basis of a Judeo-Christian ethic that there's an emphasis on personal responsibility for actions. Once you get away from that, then there is a breakdown. And that, that was what was true in the ancient world, that all of the governments surrounding Israel were totalitarian. They had excessive force. The king was viewed either as God or the agent of God. And so there is this extreme tyranny from the top, and there is virtually no personal liberty at the bottom. That was different in Israel. Now, in terms of applying this to international distinctions, what happens is the more the world today, as we see it, gets out of control with wars, etc., there's a move towards having some sort of international body that can then impose its authority on all of the nations. And so we're going to see this kind of polarization take place internationally more and more, especially if we're close to the tribulation. Once you get into the tribulation, that's when the Lord removes the restraint on that, and it's finally allowed to work its course, so there's an international body that will then uh, exercise its tyrannical function over all the nations, and that will be in the person 
of the Antichrist. Now, these chapters that we're looking at, chapter 9 in Judges, along with 1 Samuel chapter 8, are two of the most political chapters in all of the Scriptures. And we must remember that they're all part of the same period. Even though 1 Samuel 8 is a different book in the Old Testament, it is really, 1 Samuel 8 is the end of the period of the Judges. The period of the Judges began with the uh, passing of Joshua's generation, and it ends with the inauguration of the first king of Israel, who is Saul, and the first legitimate king uh, authorized by God. And this happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. There we read, and they, that is, the they here is the elders of Israel who have come to Samuel. Samuel was the first major prophet and the last judge. And he is old by this time. And the elders of Israel come to him and say, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your way. See, even a great prophet is like Samuel, who in contrast to Eli, probably did everything right as a parent. There's never any indication in Scripture that he did things wrong. But even he did everything right. His sons were still influenced by the culture. Sometimes as parents, we can do everything right, and our kids exercise their own volition eventually and reject everything we've tried to teach them. And don't run around as a parent and beat yourself up on guilt for the rest of your life. But make sure that while you have that influence on your kids, those first 12 years are the most important, the most crucial years. And the most crucial relationship in the home is that of the father as the spiritual leader in the home, not only making sure that they come to Bible class and making that a priority, but living it out and exemplifying it before the kids. But Samuel had done all of that. Nevertheless, his kids, his sons followed the culture of the prevailing culture of this period of the judges and they be, they were paganized and they rejected doctrine so the elders came to Samuel and said behold you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations we want to be like everybody else now we have to remember what everybody else was like this is a rejection of freedom everybody else around them are the Egyptians down to the southwest the Mesopotamians and Babylonians off to the east and northeast, the Hittites off to the northwest. And in each of those major in each of those major empires, the king, the Pharaoh, whoever the ultimate leader was in that society, is viewed as either God or an agent of God. Everything in that culture was designed to function to benefit the king to benefit the executive branch of government. And there was little or no individual or personal freedom in any of those nations. Every citizen in Mesopotamia or in Egypt would live their life for the purpose of serving the Pharaoh or the king. They were simply an extension of his will. So what's happening here? is that Israel now is rejecting freedom. They did not have a visible monarch. God was their king. It was a theocracy. And under that theocracy, they had, they had the greatest personal liberty and personal freedom ever to exist in human history, at least theoretically under the Mosaic Law. 
but they rejected that because they had they rejected divine viewpoint as the foundation for their lives and a foundation for their society, and they imbibed all the pagan thoughts of all the cultures around them, so now they want to be like everything else. Of course, Samuel, who understood divine viewpoint, reacted in anger, and he's upset about the whole thing. And in verse 6 we read, But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. So even though he is upset about the situation, he went to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord said to Samuel in verse 7, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. You know, there's an ancient um, African proverb that says that when the, uh, when the gods want to get back at you, they give you what you pray for. So uh, this is the Lord is going to answer their prayer as a form of divine discipline. They're going to get Samuel. Now, God ultimately intended for Israel to have a human king. That was going to be uh, displayed in David. We know that because there were regulations for kingship given in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And if God had not intended for them to have a king, then there never would have been those regulations in the law. But he's going to give them Saul, who's a bad example of a king, in order to teach them some things about kingship from a negative perspective to prepare them for David, so that they would have the right capacity and be ready for David when, it, when the time came. So the Lord said to Samuel in verse 7, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king, Malach, over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt. Now, what time period is verse 8? Think about this. When God says, like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, he's talking about the whole period of Judges. saying during this whole period of time, from the time I brought them out of the land, of course, the first 40 years was the time of uh, the wilderness wanderings in Numbers, and then there was the period of the conquest, but the majority element of this time period is that of the Judges. All that they have done from the time I brought them up to Egypt to this day, in that they have forsaken me, they've abandoned me, they have conscientiously removed me from being involved in the day-to-day affairs of life. They have removed me from the uh, thoughts of life. All the intellectual endeavors of man did not pay attention to me. It's not any different from our culture today. You go to school, you go through 12 years of public school, and then you go through four years of college, and you get the idea that God and the Bible has nothing to say about economics, politics, law, literature, history, psychology, sociology. You get the idea that God is just something secondary and just subjective. That's the message that's drilled in. Secondarily, to every person who goes through our education system, is God is not relevant to the everyday issues of life. And yet, what Scripture says is that when God is not relevant to everyday issues of life, then what happens is that society is no longer relevant to God, and so God is going to bring discipline on them. And this is what happened in Israel. They had forsaken God, they served other gods, and then he says, So they are doing this to you also. It is in this tragic event in human history that the Jews rejected freedom. And God warned them that by taking a king, that that king would just increase the burden of taxation and take away freedom. The more taxes you pay, the less freedom you have. 
And that is a biblical principle underlined in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now let's turn to Judges 9 and look at this bizarre episode of the tyranny of Abimelech. The tyranny of Abimelech. You see, the Scripture doesn't just talk about salvation and God and spiritual things. It addresses everything. It's in these chapters that the Puritans back in the 16th century and 17th century, the principles here were those that they meditated on to develop their whole political philosophy and political theory. It impacted people like John Locke. It impacted many others and became the foundation for the American Republic that was founded at the end of the 18th century. It is because they understood principles here in the Scriptures that man is inherently evil and that you do not uh, give ultimate power to any one branch of government. There has to be checks and balances because power will always corrupt, absolute power will always corrupt absolutely, and therefore it is necessary for there to be checks and balances. You never let any one branch or any one individual get too much power because men are sinners and the temptation is too great. And once they have that opportunity, then the result is tyranny. We see this with Abimelech. Now, let me remind you who Abimelech was. Abimelech is Gideon's son, one of his 70 sons that he has. And this one is by a concubine he took down in Shechem. And Shechem has an interesting history. When you, when you think of Shechem, you think of that weird episode back in Genesis chapter 34 where uh, Dinah, who was the daughter of Jacob, Dinah was raped by Shechem. Shechem is the founder of the town, and Shechem uh, then wants her. He has extreme lust for Dinah, and he, first he rapes her, then he tries to uh, uh, get her to marry him, work out a deal with, uh, with Jacob and with Jacob's sons. And as a result of that, Jake, Jacob's sons come along, and they, they devise this cunning little plot to uh, get revenge on the Shechemites. And they say, well, we'll let you marry our daughter, but first you have to be like one of us. And now, if you know anything about Jacob's uh, 12 sons, they had no spiritual inclination whatsoever. See, they're not concerned about the Shechemites becoming saved. They want revenge, but they're crafty and they're cunning. And they say, okay, we have, uh, there's only 12 of us, and there's several hundred of them, so how do we gain an advantage? They came up with an just a, a, a insidious plot. And they said, okay, you guys be like us, but first you've got to be circumcised. So they had all these three or four hundred Shechemite males who were their enemies. And they said, okay, okay, in order to, uh, for our leader Shechem, in order for him to have the woman he's left, Dinah, who was the daughter of Jacob, Dinah was raped by Shechem. Shechem is the founder of the town. And Shechem uh, then wants her. He has extreme lust for Dinah. And he, first he rapes her. Then he tries to uh, uh, get her to marry him, work out a deal with, uh, with Jacob and with Jacob's sons. And as a result of that, Jake, Jacob's sons come along and they, they devise this cunning little plot to uh, get revenge on the Shechemites. And they say, well, we'll let you marry our daughter, but first you have to be like one of us. Now, if you know anything about Jacob's uh, 12 sons, 
They had no spiritual inclination whatsoever. See, they're not concerned about the Shechemites becoming saved. They want revenge, but they're crafty and they're cunning. And they say, okay, we have, uh, there's only 12 of us and there's several hundred of them, so how do we gain an advantage? They came up with a, just an a, a insidious plot. And they said, okay, you guys be like us, but first you've got to be circumcised. So they had all these three or four hundred Shechemite males who were their enemies, and they said, okay, okay, in order to, uh, for our leader, Shechem, in order for him to have the woman he's lusting for, we'll all go through this, uh, this little surgical procedure here and get circumcised. So they all got circumcised. Well, when you're an adult male, that's not a very uh, pleasant experience, and so they were all uh, laid up for a few days, and they were not uh, able to defend the city. So because they all went through this little surgery, they were uh, in their convalescent state, and that's when the 12 sons of Jacob could assault the city and kill everybody. So they had their revenge on Shechem. And what that reminds us of, as soon as we read Shechem, it reminds us of the fact that that Jacob's 12 sons became paganized just like the nations paganized now. They weren't living or operating any differently from any of the other people. And that's why, ultimately, if you understand the theology of the Old Testament, that's why God removed them to Egypt, is because they were beginning to assimilate so much with the pagans around them, that for God to protect this new race through whom he was going to bring salvation to the world, he had to put them in a, um, in a place where they were completely isolated and protected so that he could uh, bring them to, to maturity. So as a word, he took them to Egypt as an incubator because the Egyptians were as racist as any group of people in history have ever been, and they didn't want to have anything to do with the Jew. They weren't going to uh, take their women. They weren't going to take their women even as slaves. They weren't going to intermarry. They weren't going to teach them. They hated the, the, uh, the Jews. And so the Jews had their own isolated community, and it was there that God protected them during the Egyptian slavery for the nation to grow to a, uh, a size where the, God could then bring them back to the land and accomplish his purposes. So the very mention of Shechem ought to bring to our minds the, the consequences of paganism and how horrible it is when assimilation to pagan thoughts take place. Well, Abimelech personifies this, and he has a scheme. This guy's crafty. He's brilliant. He's thoughtful. He has a, uh, he's thought this thing out, and he is going to... Uh, uh, put himself in a position of ultimate power. And we see this in the first verse. Then Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam. Now, as soon as we read the name Jeroboam, that's, a, that's the um, other name for, for uh, Gideon. It is a, a patronymic here that emphasizes Baal worship. So it's immediately we're reminded of the problem in Israel as they're worshiping the Baals and they've succumbed to paganism. Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers. Notice how he's going to pit his mother. His mother was a concubine Gideon had taken. He's going to pit his mother's relatives against his father's family. He's going to divide the family and create this hostility. He goes to, to uh, his mother's brothers and spoke with them with all the family of the house of the mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Now, what he does is he gets all his relatives together and says, Okay, I want you guys to go to everybody else in Shechem and plead my case for me. 
And here's the case. It's, don't you think it would be better for them to be under the rule and under the authority of somebody they're related to than it is to be under the rule and under the thumb of those other 70 sons that Gideon had, and they're operating up north. They don't really know us. They're not related. He's playing the race card. You know, you think the race card is something that somebody came up with just in the last five or six years. But this is exactly what, what he's playing here is a form of the race card. Wouldn't it be better for us to be ruled by one of us than by one of them? So he says, which is better for you? That all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember that I am your flesh and bone. And so he, um, he convinces them, the, the family members, to be on his side. And so then they go out to, to the men of Shechem to uh, make a bargain with them. In verse 3, his mother's brother spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said... He's our brother. You know, we're related. He, you know, the devil you know is sometimes better than the devil you don't know, or rather the devil you're related to is better than the devil you're not related to. So he is, uh, they're going to go along with Abimelech's scheme. And not only that, but they're going to subsidize him financially. So they come along and they give him 70 shekels of silver, which is uh, quite an extreme amount for that particular time. Uh, it's worth several thousand dollars today. And they give him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith. Now, there's a couple of little things that are going on in Hebrew in this. This passage is long. I don't have time to exegete everything in here. But, but the writer uses words in such a way as to conjure up images in our thinking. He comes along here and he, said they, he goes to the elders, the leaders, the men of Shechem, uh, which is not an accurate translation. It is literally in the Hebrew, the Baal Shechem. Notice Baal. Baal means Lord. And so they are called the Lords of Shechem. Now, the standard word that is used in Hebrew for leaders or princes in a, in a country is the word Sar, S-A-R. But he calls them the Baal of Shechem because he's emphasizing, he keeps repeating this idea of Baal because he wants us to get the point. The problem is not political. The problem is not economic. The problem isn't legislative. The problem is spiritual. The problem in any nation can't be solved by legislative action or activism if the people do not have their focus on spiritual priorities. Once you reject God and the God of the Bible and conscientiously remove Him from having an active role in, this, in social discourse, then the ultimate consequence is the self-destruction of the nation and nothing can stop it and nothing can, can recover it until there is a recovery based on, first of all, a return to salvation based faith alone in Christ alone, and then the application of doctrine. So these are the lords of Shechem, Baal Shechem, and they're going to give him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith. This is the Baal instantiation there, Baal Berith. Berith is the Hebrew for the covenant. And apparently it's these men that are the men who entered into this covenant. Now, uh, this is, uh, there's so much background to understand here just to, just to be able to understand the dynamics here. But just as in Israel, where they had Yahweh, who had entered into a covenant with, 
with uh, Israel. What happens in uh, with the Shechemites, the Canaanites, Satan is always trying to counterfeit truth. And so what Satan has done is created this false god, Baal, who has himself entered into a covenant with the men of Shechem. And these men, who he are the leaders, are the men who signed that covenant with Baal. And so they're the, as it were, the elders or the deacons who are running the temple of Baal Barith. And so that means they're in charge of the treasury. And so they go into the treasury. And what happened in the ancient world was the temples was really the place where banking took place and where the money was kept. So they go in and they take out the 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Barith. So he's using Baal's money and Baal's resources to handle the problem. And so he takes that money and he goes out and he hires, the text says, worthless and reckless men. He just hires a bunch of street um, scum and and, uh, vagabonds that he picks up along the way and hires them as killers. And they go with him, in verse 5, to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jeroboam, on one stone. Now, that's interesting. On one stone. Now, why do you think that the, that the writer includes that little detail? It is a ritual killing. They don't just go in and round them up and, and execute them or shoot them all or just ha- engage in a battle and kill them all. They, they, they're going, they go in, they round them up, they uh, uh, restrict them in some way, put handcuffs on them, tie their hands behind their back or something, and then they bring them out to a sacrificial altar. That's the one stone. They bring them out to a sacrificial altar and they chop their heads off as a sacrifice to Baal. This is just an absurd, bizarre situation. You see how the more you get away from from the Scriptures, the more bizarre things happen in a culture and it's legitimized. It's legitimized by the lords of Shechem. And so they kill all of of Gideon's sons, which is the, one, one of the most extreme examples of ingratitude you can imagine. Remember, Gideon's the one who just delivered them from the oppression of the, uh, of the Midianite hordes. But it is, uh, as soon as he dies, there's no gratitude anymore because there's no divine viewpoint, no concept of grace, and the culture just deteriorates. This is the low point. And it gets, in a sense, in terms of the overall panorama of judges, We've seen a decline, but it's at this point the decline accelerates. And that's why the writer of Judges takes uh, this entire chapter, some 57 verses, in order to just focus on this, this one episode. So the, the, they uh, kill all of, of Gideon's sons except one. Jotham escapes. Jotham escapes, and then he comes back somewhat surreptitiously, and he, in verse 7, we're told about his little parable. Now, this is interesting. This parable is, it's not stated it comes from God. It's not stated to be a prophecy. But this parable is a divine viewpoint commentary on kingship. This is almost as powerful a political statement as 1 Samuel 8 is. Jotham comes along, and he's not exactly the picture of courage. One can understand. He's just lost 69 brothers. He comes to Mount Gerizim. Now, Mount Gerizim is just to the northwest of Shechem. And Gerizim, apparently, is there's like an amphitheater. 
in terms of the natural structure of this mountain so that he can stand on the mountain, and this is the backdrop, and he can speak to the town of Shechem, and it's perfect acoustics, and everybody in town can hear what he says. So he comes to them, and in verse 7b he says, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. This is the first and only two times the word God is used in the passage, which again emphasizes how God is removed from Israel. He's not entering into their thinking. They have abandoned him completely. Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And he gives them a fable. Now, this is most most scholars believe that this this fable is one that it's been it has it's been well known to the people, but he's going to adapt it a little bit to this situation. And a fable is a it's, it's like a parable, except you have inanimate objects that are uh, made animate. You have trees talking, and you have like the olive trees talking, and and uh, they're they're personified. That's what makes it a fable, and then a moral is drawn from it. Says the trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? Then the trees said to the fig tree. So they started the greatest tree of all, the olive tree, because olive oil was necessary for everything in life. This is, this is the best. So next they go to the fig tree. You, you, Come and reign over us. And the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? So he rejects the offer of kingship. Verse 12. Then the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. Now the vine is the grapevine, and wine was a, a necessary commodity in the ancient world. So all of these are valued commodities. Olive, fig, olive tree, fig tree, the vine... You come and reign over us. And the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, the bramble, the lowest of the low. This is just the, 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 the creeping vine the, uh, with all the thorns, has no value whatsoever, can't provide uh, uh, wood for burning, can't provide heat for the home, can't provide fuel, uh, can't, doesn't produce any kind of fruit that is necessary for life. In fact, uh, all it is is, is is an annoyance. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble... And devour the cedars of Lebanon. And I want you to notice, let's just look briefly at the application of this parable. Verse 16 emphasizes the application. Now, therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity. Now, the word for truth, the word for truth here is the word in Hebrew, it is the word emet. And the word emet um, is actually translated truth. I think the New American Standard translates it good faith, but truth is the is the correct word. And then the Hebrew, the, the word for, um, for sincerity is tamim, tamim. And this word means blameless or perfect. And together, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a hendiatus. This is when you take two nouns or two adjectives, link them together, and they're both referring to one whole. And this is a Hebrew idiom for integrity, 
true integrity, operating on the basis of honesty and value. And this frames the, the, um, the explanation here. Starts off in verse 16, if you've acted in truth and sincerity, if you've acted in integrity. Verse 19, if you have acted in truth and integrity. I don't like the word sincerity because a lot of people are sincere, but they're wrong. This is talking about being right. This is talking about integrity. And that's the whole point of, of uh, Jotham's parable. If you've really dealt with Gideon and his memory and integrity, then everything's okay. But if you haven't, and of course they haven't, then you're in for some divine discipline. Now, the, the uh, parable itself is an interesting commentary. First of all, in the ancient world, kingship was generally viewed as something positive. I mean, you go to, as I've said before, Egypt, Mesopotamia, the Hittites. The king is like God or the agent of the God. Kingship is viewed as something extremely positive. But in this parable, kingship is viewed as something that is destructive and something that is harmful to the citizens. I mean, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the... And the, uh, the vine, all of which are valuable and produce something of value to society, don't want to have anything to do with politics. Doesn't that ring true for today? We're, too, we're so busy doing that which is best for society that we're not going to get tainted by being involved in something as low as politics. So there's something negative that is portrayed here in relationship to kingship. Secondly, Persons of honor who are engaged in constructive activity have no time for political agendas. The, the, the fig tree, the, 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 I mean, the, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine represent people who are involved in solid, productive activities for society, and they're too busy serving humanity to be caught up with uh, politics. So rule then falls, according to the parable, to the most despicable, self-serving elements of society. This does not present a positive view of politicians. The third thing we see in this parable is that rulers have a tendency to desire power for their worst reasons, their own narcissistic self-interest. Now, that that strikes home culturally for us, and I won't uh, dwell on that. We all have seen uh, such rampant displays of narcissistic self-interest in politi- among political leaders in the last few years that um, we don't need to expand on that. We've all had living examples. So the fourth thing then, in the words of, um, of uh, many modern observers, the people get exactly the kind of leader they deserve. They get the bramble. And too often the leaders that we get are the leaders we deserve because they accurately reflect the heartbeat of the nation that produced them. And that's exactly what it's happened. When we look around, we look at our leaders sometimes and we criticize them, realize we're the nation, we're the culture that produced those people, and we've gotten exactly what we deserve. So in terms of the parable, we see this critique of uh, the entire political process, and then it is followed up by this uh, stinging a critique from verse 16 and following where Jotham says, if you've acted in integrity by making Abimelech king, then, uh, and if you've dealt well with Jeroboam, 
and have done to him as he deserves. My father fought for you, risked his life, delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's household this day. You killed his seventy sons on one stone. You made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem, because he's your brother. If indeed you have acted in integrity, but you haven't, and with, with Jeroboam and with his house, then rejoice. But if not, and of course you didn't, then let fire, that is judgment, come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So he pronounces this, uh, what becomes a prophecy of judgment on the nation because of their lack of gratitude, because of their self-centeredness, because of the way they have uh, treated with ingratitude Jeroboam and his family. And then he runs away in fear. He's not exactly the uh, paragon of uh, courage here, but he does announce the downfall of Abimelech. And then the rest of the chapter deals with how that takes place, and we'll see that next Sunday morning when we come back with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to look at your word because we realize above all that there is no human solution to our problems. The only solution is the divine solution, and that ultimately was given when you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Apart from recognizing that solution, there is no other solution. Apart from recognizing the truth of your word and its application in our society, there is no other solution. Your word is absolute truth. It is in your light that we see light. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal destiny, uh, unsure of their salvation, that right now they would make it sure and certain. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, for every sin committed in human history. There is no sin too great for the grace of God. And God says then that all we need to do is to accept that free gift. We do that by believing, simple act of faith, believing that Christ died on the cross for our sins. If you've never done that, you can do it right now, right where you sit. You don't have to make a bargain with God. You don't have to walk an aisle, raise your hand. You don't have to engage in any other form of activity. All you have to do is simply believe Christ died as your substitute. Then you have eternal life, which can never be taken from you, and you will have an eternal destiny in heaven. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we've studied, that they would give us much to contemplate in terms of our own thinking, our own lives, our own uh, marriages, our own families, our own cultures that we're involved in, that we might be able to apply the truth of your word in our thinking to our understanding of our circumstances. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.